morning, Linworth. It's good to be with you this morning on this beautiful spring morning. And now May, we made it. Woo-hoo. <laughs> let's stand and let's worship God together this morning. Let's sing together. I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that's been the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to
That's obviously that's an old hymn that I love. I love doing that one in the spring. You know, like th- th- think about a month ago. Everywhere you know, everywhere you looked, it was the trees were bare, the grass was brown. It, it was just dark and dreary, and you know, and then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, all this color in life comes back. I mean, what a wonderful God! And 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 think just about yourself with that. You know, maybe there are some dry places in your life that God wants to revive, that God wants to breathe life into. And just in, in the, the mystery, the true mystery of spring, you know, don't think that he can or won't do that in your life. That is the God that we serve. He loves bringing life to dry places. So let's continue to worship and sing together this morning.
Kids, you can head off to your classes, and non-kids, turn and say hello to someone next to you. Well, good morning, Linworth. Morning. You know, it's been a kind of a long drought through the whole, you know, that C word of not turning around and saying hello, good morning to somebody or greeting them, et cetera, et cetera. We'll bring back the holy kiss next week, so uh, we'll be good. We'll be good. But uh, just kidding. Uh, but uh, good morning. Glad you're here. And uh, for those of you that are listening online, uh, uh, good morning too. Glad that you could join us here. And uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, we always like to give a special thank you that you're here and you're joining us. Um, and then we'd like everybody to go ahead and grab what's called a Connect card in front of them here. And especially if you're visiting with us, if you could put your uh, information on there, we'd love to send you a thank you note, give you a little information about the church, and then invite you to our welcome desk where we have a little gift bag for you. We have a nice little uh, coffee mug in there and some information about the church. So. Um, once again, glad that you're here and you're spending your Sunday morning with us. Uh, and everybody, please continue to send prayer requests. Let us know what's going on in your life. Um, it's a way that um, the, the pastors here, we can stay connected to you as we pray for you. Uh, it helps us understand a little bit what's going on in your life, so we appreciate that. And then if you uh, want any more information, uh, there's parts on there that you can check off. It's also in the Bible app. Uh, as you follow along with the service, and so there is a connect card there for you too. Okay, we just have a, uh, two announcements this morning. First one is the men's camp out. That's happening on May 13th and 14th, and so we're going to get together, and uh, it's going to be a good time, but it's, it's really a time to slow down, get away um, from things, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to, uh, to go before the Lord and to get quiet and to spend some time uh, with him and it's also an opportunity for you to bring your son so on uh, be a great father-son outing so you can uh, bring them along it's 20 bucks covers the food sons under age 12 are free we're just not going to feed them um, but other than that I think it's gonna be great but you can sign up there's information there on how to sign up also on the app you can also go to the website and scroll up and you'll see uh, events and click on there and you'll be able to sign up but please register by Tuesday, May 10th, because we do need to buy food, or maybe you won't eat also. Okay, uh, let's move on. Celebration service, this is a highlight four times a year for us. Uh, here at Linworth, anytime there's five weeks in a month, we get together and we just celebrate what God has been doing uh, in our lives as he's worked with us here. So um, we have baptisms, baby dedications, uh, testimonies. We usually have some theme that we attach to it. So that's coming up. And so uh, we announce it now because of a couple of things. If you've not been baptized and you want to get baptized, uh, we'd like to uh, get in contact with you. So you can write baptism on your Connect card. And we want to encourage that uh, in your life if you are a Christ follower. And then also, if you have a baby to be dedicated, we're asking you that you'd contact us. Uh, also, write on the Connect card or call the office, or there's some there's uh, information on there as far as uh, contacting us by 
uh, emails. So those are the two big things that uh, we have for you at this point. And before we have Chris, uh, excuse me, Nick. Nick, you gonna do it or Chris? Oh, you want Chris to do it? Okay, all right, okay. But um, on a serious note though, um, uh, many of you know Pete Thielen, and he's been a man member for many, 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 many years here at Linworth, and he had a very critical heart is uh, issue come up, and he's in the ICU, and he is in critical condition, and we want to pray for him this morning. Um, he's, he's had some other health issues, so he hasn't been with us every, every Sunday morning, but he's a dear member um, of our congregation. So let's join me as we lift him up. Father, we, we just love Pete, and uh, uh, we just love who you made him to be. And right now he's in a place, uh, a very vulnerable place, Father. And uh, we just pray over him in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord. We ask that you would heal him, that you bring his heart to a place where it starts beating correctly. We thank you that, um, that he is beginning to respond. And so we thank you for that uh, glimpse of hope. Um, Lord, we want your covering there. We know your will will be done. Uh, we love Pete, we love you, and we ask that you be with him, uh, that he would hear uh, the visitors that are coming in and to be able to connect with them, that you would um, use the doctors and the nurses to make good, discerning decisions in his care. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. Hope you are having a good weekend so far. Um, today, we are going to continue in this new series uh, through the book of Titus that we started last week called The Power of Doing Good. Um, but before we jump into the passage, I just wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of, of where we're at culturally or, or even sociologically uh, in terms of living in what some have called the information age. You see, according to Collins Dictionary, the information age is a time when large amounts of information are widely available to many people, largely through computer technology. And based on that definition, I think it's fair to say we are certainly living in an information age. Uh, you know, earlier this week, I was reading an article and in it, it was talking about just the insane levels of information that you and I take in on a daily basis. And I knew that that number had to be pretty high, but according to the article, here's what it said. It said, scientists have measured the amount of data that enters the brain, and they have found that an average person living today processes as much as 74 gigabytes of information a day. That's as much as watching 16 movies. And we do it through TV, computers, cell phones, tablets, billboards, and many other gadgets. Every year, it is about 5% more than the previous year. Now, this article was written in 2017, which is already five years ago. And so if, that, if what they're saying holds true, that's an increase of 20% even since then. But not only that, the article continued to say this. Only 500 years ago, 74 gigabytes of information would be what a highly educated person consumed in a lifetime through books and stories. Now, I don't know about you, but I found that staggering. In fact, it made me kind of feel a little sick to my stomach. Like that's, that's crazy just to think that in one day, you and I consume as much information as one person did in their entire lifetime just 500 years ago. That's crazy. 
And I think one of the things that's so difficult about all of that is that because we are exposed to so much information, we are in turn, I think, expected to be experts on all kinds of things. And yet because we are exposed to so much different information, it's extremely difficult to truly know enough about something to really understand it properly, especially with all the different nuances. And so usually what ends up happening, I think, is that uh, we know, we kind of know we can't be experts on uh, most topics. And so instead what we do is we just look for people who we kind of know and trust and just sort of adopt whatever it is they say about the topic or subject. And sometimes that's fine and that's okay, but other times I think it gets you and I into some real trouble. And it certainly opens doors for us to be persuaded and to have convictions about something that may or may not be helpful or true. The other part of this that I think is a real challenge for us as believers is that in terms of our Christian faith, the sheer number of teachers and pastors and authors and social media influencers and podcasters that you and I are exposed to is virtually limitless. I mean, again, just, to, just think about it. Just a couple hundred years ago, an average Christian was exposed to maybe only a couple of pastors in their lifetime. Right? Like if you lived in a small village, like maybe you went from the Presbyterians to the Methodists, but you know, again, you're, you're only talking about a few number of, of, of pastors or teachers that you were exposed to and, and maybe a couple of books, right? Like maybe you had Pilgrim's Progress from John Bunyan, but besides that, that was it. Whereas now the number of people that you and I receive Christian teaching and instruction from is enormous. And certainly there are blessings to that. I mean, I, I know that I am very grateful for the many different books and podcasts and Bible teachers that I get to read and listen to. But at the same time with that, I think there are also some downsides or at least there's some risk involved. You see, what you and I do and don't believe really does matter. Or to say it another way, our beliefs have consequences. And for us as Christians, we need to be exposed to good, solid biblical teaching. That's very important. But it's also important for us to be on our guard against false teaching as well. And certainly, as we'll see today, false teaching is not a new problem. In fact, false teaching has existed and has been a problem since the Garden of Eden, right? Like even all the way back at the beginning, the serpent was seeking to twist and to distort the word of God. But even still, with the amount of voices and exposure that you and I face day in and day out, I think it does increase our risk of being led astray. And therefore, I think it increases our need for discernment. And not only that, but as we'll see in today's passage, it also increases our need for good leaders in the church who are sound in doctrine. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Titus. Uh, We'll be looking at chapter one again. It's on page 998 in our pew Bibles, if you need to borrow one there. And once you find it, go ahead and stand as I read today's passage. Again, Titus chapter one, starting in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, 
not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, uh, that we have access to it. And thank you, Lord, that it has the power to change and to shape us. And so, Father, I ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see today. You'd give us ears to hear. And I pray that you give us hearts to know and to obey you. And so we commit this morning to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can go ahead and take a seat. Okay, so our uh, outline for this morning, uh, we're just going to look at four questions to better help us understand this passage. And those four questions are this. Number one, what was the false teacher's identity? Or in other words, who were they? Number two, what was their impact? Number three, what was uh, their issues? Or in other words, what what was it that these teachers were doing that was a problem? And then number four, what were Paul's instructions? Or in other words, what did Paul tell Titus to do in order to address this problem? And then we'll finish up with some application at the end. Now, before we get into this first question here, let me just sort of reset the context um, and the scene a little bit for those of you who maybe missed last week or who are visiting with us. So what's going on here in the book of Titus is that last week, uh, Chris walked us through the, the beginning, the first nine verses in the chapter. And what we saw there was that Paul wrote this letter to his friend and ministry partner, uh, a man by the name of Titus. And the purpose of the letter was to give him some instructions and commands around leading and helping the churches on the island of, of Crete. And again, based on what we know from history, uh, these churches most likely had been started and planted by Paul at some point earlier, but that he had to leave before they were firmly established, which again is why he says in verse five of chapter one, this, he says, this is why I left you Titus in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, certainly the need for elders existed no matter what, since that was the normal way that God designed the church to function in the first place. But what we'll see in our passage this morning is that the need was even greater because of what was happening in the churches at Crete. Namely, the fact that in the absence of elders, false teachers had infiltrated the church and they had begun to lead the people astray. And so with that in mind, let's look at this first question here in our outline, which is this, what was their identity? Or in other words, who were they? Well, look at verse 10. Paul says this, he says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Okay, so the first thing that we learn about these people off the bat is that there were lots of them. Now, Paul doesn't give us an exact number here, but he does say that there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. And so again, the point here is that there was not just one or two uh, you know, rogue troublemakers. No, this was a sizable number of people who were engaging in false teaching. Now, the other thing that we see here in verse 10 in terms of their identity is that Paul mentions that most of them Uh, He says, especially are a part of this thing he calls the circumcision party. Now, unfortunately, he doesn't elaborate more than that. But based on this statement, 
And also based on what he says here in verse 14 about them being devoted to Jewish myths, we do uh, see and understand that there was some element of Judaism uh, to their teaching, but we don't know fully all what that means or who they were. You see, one of the big challenges in reading the Bible is that the Bible was written uh, for us, but it was not written to us. And what I mean by that is that, uh, of course, we believe that the Bible is the inspired and authoritative word of God for all time and for all people. But we also recognize that it was written to certain groups of people who were in a certain context. Now, in saying that, it in no way diminishes the Word of God in our lives here in 21st century America. But it does mean that uh, sometimes there are things written in it which we cannot fully know. I mean, particularly, I think that the epistles or the, the letters in the New Testament present a challenge to us. And what I mean by that is that the, the letters are a little bit like when you and I were a kid and we tried to listen to our mom's telephone conversation. You remember that, like when they had the cord and it, like they had to stretch it through the house and as a kid, you're trying to listen into that and you're trying to figure out who it is your mom's talking to and, and what they're talking about. And sometimes it was easy to know the fuller context based on uh, what your mom was saying and the kinds of questions she was asking. You're like, oh, that's grandma, right? But other times you, you were left to guess. And in the same way, in those New Testament letters, in these New Testament letters, often we are only hearing one side of a conversation and the person or the group on the other side of the letter knows what kinds of questions that they have asked and they also know the context of their situation but often we do not now obviously i think god did this on purpose and he designed the bible to work in this way but again occasionally it does make things harder for us to understand and in this case, we don't know all that much about exactly who these false teachers were, but we do know that there was a decent amount of them and that there was a distinctly Jewish element to their identity and to their teaching. But let's move on now from that question to the next one, which is this, what was their impact? What kind of influence were they having in the churches? We'll look again at verse 11. Paul continues, he says this, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now again, as with the last question, we don't have a ton of information here, but we do see that these teachers were having a significant impact on the community of believers in Crete. Now the ESV says here that they were upsetting whole families. Uh, other English translations say they're whole households. And apparently the Greek here can support either one of those words. But since it could refer to households, many commentators have argued that Paul is saying here that they have upset many households. And by that, they're, they're saying Paul is upset uh, that these false teachers have upset many of the house churches. Since back then, churches met in, in homes, and so they were referred to as households. Now, in the end, whether Paul met individual families or if he met churches, I'm not sure it really matters all that much since the effect would be the same. But again, what is clear here is that these false teachers were having a significant impact and influence on the Christians who were in Crete. And therefore, they were causing all kinds of problems. Which brings us to the next question in our outline, and that is this. What was their issue? What, what was it about these teachers that was so bad that it needed to be dealt with? 
Well, if we look at these six or seven verses in our passage this morning, what we're going to find out is that they had three basic issues. And those three basic issues could be summarized by three M words. Their motives were wrong, their morals were wrong, and their message was wrong. And so let's look at each one of those now in some more detail. And so starting with their motives, look look at what Paul says in verse 11. He says, they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Uh, The New Living Translation says it this way, they are turning whole families away from the truth by their false teaching, and they do it only for money. You see, the reality is when you look closely at most false teaching or at most false teachers, what you're gonna find is that there's almost always a wrong motive involved. And not only that, but usually the person is well aware of the fact that what they are teaching is false, that it's bogus, but they do it anyway because of how it benefits them. Again, as it says here in verse 10, they're deceivers. You see, when you evaluate most false teaching, what you're gonna find is that somebody at the top receives an enormous benefit as a result. Whether it's power or whether it's something sexual or escaping persecution, or as in the case here, financial gain. Again, when you look closely enough, what you'll find is that most false teachers have a wrong motive behind why they are teaching what it is they are teaching. And what we see here with these false teachers in Crete is that they are no different. They were for sure receiving financial benefit, but not only that, it's also possible that they were also escaping uh, persecution as well. Again, Paul mentions here that they're from the circumcision party. We know from other parts of scripture, uh, particularly the book of Acts, that Paul received all kinds of abuse and persecution from his fellow Jews because of his view on circumcision and on the law. And, And so because of that, perhaps this was also a part of their motivation as well. Now we said earlier that not only did they have wrong motives, but we also see here that Paul points out that they had wrong morals. In other words, these teachers had character problems and issues. These were not godly people. Verse 10 says of them that they were insubordinate, or some translations say they're they're, they're rebellious. Most likely this refers to their inability to submit to authority. As well as, as, as he just pointed out, it says there in verse 10 that they are deceivers. Or in other words, these people are liars. They don't tell the truth. And if that point wasn't clear enough, Paul in verse 12 goes on to quote one of Crete's own prophets who said this about his own people. He said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then in verse 13, after quoting that, Paul says, this is true. This testimony is true of them. And so again, Paul quotes this really ungracious and unflattering stereotype about the Cretan people uh, from one of their own, own people. And then he says, yep, that's right. You are acting exactly like that. Now, some have have bristled at this because they think Paul is using a stereotype or is even being possibly racist here. And certainly I think we would all acknowledge that sometimes stereotypes are in fact unfair. Um, Not only are they unfair, but they they are at, at times racist and wrong. But in terms of what Paul is doing here, I think it's okay. You see, we know from other writings and historians that the ancient people of Crete did have quite a negative reputation. Again, this saying here that Paul quotes comes from one of their own people, a guy by the name of uh, Epimendes from the sixth century. But not only that, a different third century uh, BC source said this of them. 
Christians are thieves from way back, pirates. They never think along legal lines. Another guy talked about the fact that uh, Crete, because it was an island, it was famous for not having any wild uh, beast or any wild animals that were dangerous on it. But then he went on to say this, well, most countries have to deal with wild bears in Crete, the same problem was posed by people who in the absence of wild animals assumed the role themselves. Not only that, but according to commentator Tim Chester, in the Greek language, Cretan became a byword for dishonesty. To Crete was to lie. And so certainly Paul quoting this and applying it to the Cretan false teachers, I think you could argue is pretty fair and accurate. But not only that, one, uh, another author, he went on to say this in, in defending Paul. He says, is Paul a racist because he agrees with the philosopher's sweeping criticisms of the Cretan people? Again, the answer is no, but this is a fair question. Epimendes' proverb was so common in the ancient world that the Greek word Cretian was used as a synonym for liar or, or cheater. While Epimendes was criticizing Cretan people in general, Paul is saying that the old adage about Cretans is true of these false teachers since they are liars and cheaters who can't be trusted. They are living up to the stereotype. They're quintessential Cretans. Um, another commentator said this, he said, the fact that Paul was seeking to plant and stabilize churches in the region is proof enough that he did not denigrate or despise the inhabitants of Crete and Toto. So in terms of their morals and their character, not only are they insubordinate and rebellious, but we also see here that they are liars and deceivers. But that's not all. Paul in, in verse 16 even uh, ends the chapter by saying this about them. He says, you know, these false teachers, they, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. I mean, Paul is definitely not holding back here. He is, he is definitely condemning them in terms of their character. He's saying, look, these guys, they claim to know God, but it's obvious based on their character and how they live their lives that they do not know him. And there's no doubt that I think that Paul has in mind here the, the, the qualifications for elders that he just spelled out earlier in the chapter. And in contrast to those qualifications, Paul is saying these individuals are unqualified. They don't meet the, the character qualities for a leader in the church. Which brings us to the last issue that we see with them, and that is not only do they have wrong uh, motives and a wrong moral, but they also have a wrong message. Now, again, like what we saw with their identity, Paul doesn't give us a ton of information here. But as we already pointed out, they were devoting themselves to Jewish myths. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean Old Testament stories or Old Testament narratives or anything like that. These Jewish myths would have been um, extra biblical uh, myths or legends that these guys were teaching. And so clearly Paul is condemning them for that. Now, certainly when we look at the other epistles in the New Testament, we see that quite a few of the other churches that Paul oversaw and that he planted himself did have false teaching or heresies that had infiltrated them. Whether we're talking about the Galatians or the Corinthians or the Thessalonians or, or even the Ephesian church who Paul talks to Timothy about in 1st and 2nd Timothy. False teaching and false gospels abounded in Paul's day and they were a major problem. 
Now the challenge is, is that in most of these examples, the issue of uh, the issue or the false teaching that was happening was different in each of the churches. In other words, it's not like there was one main false teaching that all of the churches struggled with. No, there were lots of different ones. And in some of the letters, they're, they're spelled out a lot clearer and there's more details given around them. For example, we know that in the Corinthian church, there were some who were teaching that Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians had to write in order to combat that false teaching. We know of the Thessalonian church that, that there were some who were teaching that Jesus had already returned. And therefore, uh, they were disrupting the faith of those believers by saying, you had missed out that, that he was not going to come back again. In Galatians, uh, it's probably the most well-known case of false teaching. There, what we have is the false teaching uh, it revolved around trying to get people to live back under the law and try to make themselves right with God by obeying the law. And therefore, uh, the reason it was so dangerous is because ultimately it distorted the gospel, which is why Paul comes off so aggressive in that letter. Now, in terms of the false teaching here in Titus, what a lot of commentators think is that it was probably pretty similar to the issue that Paul addressed in First and Second Timothy, although maybe not totally the exact same. Again, what we know about it from Titus is that it does have a Jewish influence or dimension to it. Again, he mentions here them being devoted to Jewish myths and the fact that they come out of the circumcision party. He also says that they, uh, they're devoted to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Now, in saying that, Paul could be uh, getting at something like what Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for in Matthew 15, when he talked about how the Pharisees were devoted to obeying human commands and human tradition instead of obeying the commands of God. As well, based on what Paul says here in verse 15, when he says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Perhaps there was also an element of their teaching that, that revolved around and that insisted on Old Testament purity laws or ritual cleansing laws. Again, unfortunately, Paul doesn't give us a ton of information or specifics about what exactly it was that these false teachers were teaching. But he does give us enough to know that their message was off, that it was wrong. And so again, the, the problem with these false teachers and the issue that Paul had with them was that their motives were wrong, their morals were wrong, and lastly, their message was wrong. But let's move on now to that last question in the outline, and that is this. In light of all of this, what, what was Paul's instructions? What was it that he wanted Titus to do in order to address this problem? Well, as we said last week, his main instruction in the letter is for Titus to appoint godly, qualified men to lead the church. In other words, one of Paul's main solutions to false teaching is to appoint elders who teach accurately and faithfully the word of God. That's why, again, he writes in verse 9, when describing the, the, the qualities of an elder, he says this, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the antidote to false teaching is good teaching. The antidote to ungodly, unqualified teachers and leaders is godly qualified teachers and leaders. 
You see, I think we're kind of in this weird moment where there has been so many scandals and so many abuses and bad teaching both inside and outside the church that, that for many people, they're tempted to respond to all of that by rejecting authority and by saying authority and structure are the problem. But actually, as we see here in the passage, authority and leadership aren't the problem. The problem is actually people who reject authority and who teach what is false and who are unqualified to leave because their character is corrupt. And so don't reject authority and throw out the concept of leaders and, and teachers just because some of them have been corrupt and false. But instead, submit yourself to ones who are qualified, ones who do teach what is true, what accords with sound doctrine. Again, the antidote to false teaching is good teaching. The antidote to ungodly leaders is godly leaders. And so Titus's first instructions here are to appoint qualified elders who can teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. But not only that, we also see that Paul tells Titus himself to silence or muzzle the false teachers and to rebuke them sharply. Also in chapter two, verse one, he tells Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. You see, Paul ultimately wants Titus to appoint and raise up elders who can do this work on an ongoing basis in the future. But in the meantime, the problem is bad enough that Paul is asking Titus as, a, as one who carries apostolic authority to go ahead and to address this problem himself. And so these are Titus's instructions from the letter. Now, as we begin to think about some application here, and as we begin to think about what all of this means for us today, I thought perhaps it would be help for us to talk, helpful for us to talk through and to try to answer the question, what exactly is false teaching? And what is it that makes someone a false teacher? You see, the reason I think that this is an important question to ask and to talk about is because of what we said at the beginning of the message. Again, you and I, we, we live in this unprecedented day not because of COVID, I know that word got thrown around, unprecedented. No, we live in an unprecedented day in terms of the access and also the quantity of information that we take in. And because of that, our exposure to false teaching is even greater than it was in previous generations. And honestly, I, I don't think that that should surprise us. Uh, Paul, in, in a different letter in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 3, he wrote this. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I was just thinking about that verse uh, this week and I was thinking about that phrase, accumulate teachers for themselves. I mean, think of how easy and practical that is for us to do today. Right, like all we have to do is turn on the TV, pull up YouTube, uh, pop in our headphones and listen to a podcast, read a book, right? Like I don't even know in Paul's day uh, or even just a couple years ago how that would have been possible to accumulate teachers for yourself. But I know that it's certainly possible and even easy for us to do that today. And so again, because of that, I think it's really important that you and I know what false teaching is and how to spot someone who might be a false teacher. And so to walk us through this, I thought I would just share with you now five, a, a series of diagnostic questions 
that I think you and I can ask ourselves in order to evaluate whether or not something is or isn't false teaching. And the first question that I think you and I need to ask when listening to something that someone claims is Christian teaching is this. Does this teaching add to, subtract from, or in any other way mess with the gospel message as presented to us in the New Testament? Now, in order to evaluate this and to walk through this question, you and I need to know what exactly the gospel is. Now, to be fair, there are a lot of different ways that you and I could talk about it. And certainly, depending on who you ask, they might have certain nuances or emphasis when, when, when talking about the gospel. But at the heart of it, though, is the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, when describing the gospel, he said it this way. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. After that, Paul goes on to talk about how those of us who belong to Christ will be resurrected with him one day and we will receive uh, new bodies, resurrected bodies. He also, in verse 24, talks about how at the end, Jesus will deliver the kingdom over to his father after he has destroyed all of his enemies, including Satan, sin, and death. Paul, in the book of Titus, um, later on in chapter 3, when, when talking about the gospel, said it this way. He said, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, again, at the heart of the gospel message, at the heart of the good news is that Jesus Christ has died for our sins. He has paid the debt that you and I owe. And in doing so, he has defeated all of our enemies, including Satan, sin, and death. And therefore, he has given us hope of eternal life. Um, John Piper summarized the gospel this way. He said, the gospel is the news that Jesus Christ the righteous one died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. And so again, if you come across something that adds to, subtracts, or messes with that message, then you can be sure it is false teaching. As one author I read this week put it, he said, dangerous doctrines come in different shapes and sizes, but they have what Danny Aiken calls heretical math, adding to, subtracting from, multiplying or dividing the gospel as their common denominator. And so that would be the first question that I think would be really important to ask. A second question to ask would be this, does the person or group gain any unrighteous advantage or benefit by teaching this message? Now, with this question, what we're trying to get after is, what is the motivation behind it? 
As we saw with the false teachers in Crete, there was some sort of advantage that they were getting as a result of their message. For them, it, it certainly was financial. And as we talked about, it could have been avoiding persecution as well. And certainly in our own day, we see all kinds of false teaching that stems from bad motives. Whether it's making large amounts of money, as we see with some of the prosperity gospel teachers uh, and preachers, or which by the way, if, if you come across something that has an adjective in front of the word gospel, like prosperity gospel or social gospel or something like that, then you should probably run. And there's probably a good chance that uh, it's, it's getting into some false teaching. And so certainly those things are motivations, uh, money. Other times it might have to be something sexual, right? Like certainly if you look into a lot of cults, uh, what you're gonna find there is that many of them involve the men or at least the main leader benefiting sexually as a result of their teaching. And so that would be another twisted motive to look out for. As well for some, it's a power thing or it's a reputation thing. For some, as we said earlier, it's just simply trying to avoid persecution and ridicule. Honestly, I think that's what's behind a lot of the false teaching in the church today when it comes to abandoning the Bible's view of sex and sexuality, right? Like I think for, for some people, they're just, they're just wanting to avoid being accused of being bigoted or hateful or of being on the wrong side of history. And so to avoid that, they either deny what the Bible says or even worse, they try to make the Bible say things that it doesn't say. And so again, when it comes to false teaching, motivation is the key. Look into how someone might be benefiting from what they're doing. Another question that I think would be good to ask is this, does this teaching deny, reject, ignore, or add to any clear teaching or command in the Bible or of scripture? Now this question is a really important one, but I think it can also be a tricky one. And the reason I say that is because I think often we accuse people of false teaching when really the issue uh, that they are talking about is an interpretation difference, or it's something that perhaps the Bible is not super clear about. You see, the reason I bring this up is because again, I think that there are some of us who think that everybody is a false teacher who doesn't agree with us on exactly every point. Uh, you see, I came across another interesting article this week by a British pastor uh, named Andrew Wilson, who I really respect and enjoy. I've read uh, lots of different things from him over the years. But the article was so interesting. He, he said this. He said, what is a false teacher? It might sound like a silly question, but I don't think that it is. I've been prompted to ask it by something I've observed in the last few weeks, which is this. America seems to be full of false teachers and Britain seems to be blissfully free of the problem. <laughs> he says, American Christians like the apostles are fairly happy to label certain people false teachers and certain messages false gospels. Brits by and large are extremely nervous of saying anything so apparently callous and judgmental. At one level, I'm sure this is the product of two obvious sociological factors the far larger size of the American Christian population, which makes intra-evangelical debates much bigger and more significant than they are in Britain, and the well-known, although often overstated, British penchant for reserve and caution. In contrast to our gung-ho cousins across the water, <laughs> he says at another level, however, I think it reflects a genuine disagreement about what exactly a false teacher is. 
And so if you were able to track with that, what he's pointing out is that culturally, American Christians and British Christians have different views and approaches to identifying and calling out false teachers. But then he goes on in the article and he talks about how he himself has taught things in the past that he now has a different conviction on. And so because of that, he asked the question, does that make me a false teacher? He then talks about some other well-known Christians uh, like John Piper or N.T. Wright. And, and he talks about how he himself disagrees with, with different points of their theology. And so he says, are they false teachers? And then after that, he looks at a, quite a few of the New Testament passages which talk about false teachers. And then he says this. He says, notice all of these passages refer to false teachers, prophets, and apostles, brothers, in a very similar way. They are depicted as those who masquerade as Christian believers, but who in reality are not. They teach things which strike at the heart of the Christian gospel, and they undermine people's faith. They themselves are consumed by and lead people into idolatry, whether through money, sex, or power, and they are destined for eternal destruction by God. In other words, labels like false teacher and false apostle are not used in the epistles to refer to those who merely teach wrong doctrine. And then he says, compare the way Paul speaks of Cephas, James, and Barnabas after Antioch gate. For example, you have to look at Galatians to understand that. He says, they are used of people who conduct and believe, uh, whose conduct and belief indicates that they are not even Christians. He continues, he says, wolves are those who eat sheep, not those who make life more confusing and annoying for shepherds. To say that someone is a false teacher in the New Testament terms is to say that they are going to hell. Some might see that as an over-fuzzy uh, definition of what a false teacher is. After all, what is a false teacher except one who teaches falsely? But I would respond to that, I would respond to that by saying Paul's approach to Peter was very different from his approach to Hymenaeus and Alexander. He confronted one and he handed the others over to Satan. And that as one who has taught a whole bunch of things that are wrong in my ministry so far, I am gr very grateful for that. I am living proof, and so are Piper and Wright and many others, that it is possible to teach incorrectly on something without being condemned by both men and God as a false teacher. Now, I don't know about you, and I found that to be very helpful. Maybe you disagree with, with his definition there, but again, I, I, I find it to be helpful. You see, I think you and I have to keep in mind that not all doctrines or not all theological issues are on the same level. And because of that, you and I, when it comes to this question, will need to do what Al Mohler calls theological triage. And by that, he means we need to look at a doctrine and assess how serious and how essential that doctrine is to the Christian faith. Others have used language like jar one or category one issues. And then obviously you have jar two and jar three. Jar one issues would be things that are the most foundational to the Christian faith. These are things that you and I must believe in in order to be a Christian. Things like the gospel, the humanity and the deity of Jesus, the Trinity, uh, the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus, the virgin birth. I mean, basically anything that you and I might find in one of the early Christian creeds, these are jar one category issues. These are things that are central to our faith. 
This is why groups like Jehovah's Witness or Mormons would, why we would refer to them as, as those who teach a false message, because the things that they teach do strike at the heart of the Christian faith. Now, after JAR 1 issues, there's quite a bit of debate about what is a JAR 2 and what is a JAR 3 issue. But in general, JAR 2 issues tend to be things that are still really, really important. And therefore, Christians do end up dividing over them, which is why we do have so many different churches and denominations. But again, they're, they're, they're definitely not on the same level as a JAR 1 belief. And so depending who you ask, maybe a, a, a JAR 2 doctrine would be something like baptism, you know, infant or, or believer's baptism. Uh, it might be things like spiritual gifts or women's roles in the church or Calvinism and or versus Arminianism or views of creation, etc. Now, in terms of JAR 3 beliefs, these are things that most people would say that, that, that people could disagree on but still be in the same church or in the same denomination. And so the most common one that people put in this category is things like eschatology, or in other words, how you view the end times. And there are probably some other things that you could put in that category as well. And so with this as a kind of framework, and in light of what Wilson argued in that article, personally, I think that you and I should only label people as false teachers if they are denying or rejecting something that is a jar one category. Now, again, you may disagree with that, but in my opinion, Wilson is right. False teachers in the Bible were people who in the end were not Christians. And so I would just urge you as one of your pastors uh, that, that as, a, as a believer, we need to be kind and gracious towards fellow Christians that we disagree with. And perhaps you and I should not be so quick to label people false teachers or heretics unless it's actually biblically true. Now, there's a whole lot more we could say on that one, but let's go to the next question, and that is this. What is the fruit of the teaching? Or what is the fruit that we see in the teacher's own life? You see, in Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about this very issue. And in verse 15, he said this. He said, beware of false, teacher, or false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. See, when it comes to receiving teaching, if that teaching doesn't point you towards Jesus and cause you to love him and to love others more, then there's probably a good chance that it's not from God. And not only that, but if this person's teaching is not producing fruit in their own lives, then there's also a good chance that they themselves are not truly following God. And so again, you and I, we need to ask ourselves, what is the fruit of the teaching and what is the fruit that I see in that teacher's life? Now, certainly we can't always know people's character, which is why I think that you and I should primarily listen to and submit ourselves uh, to teachers and pastors who we can actually know what's going on in their lives. We can know a little bit about their character rather than some celebrity or well-known person that, that you don't know and most likely have not met. But even with that, I think that we've even seen in the last couple of years that, that often if people are living a shady hypocritical life, eventually that ends up leaking out at some point. 
And so the, the, the fruit of a person's life really does matter. Now, the last question that I think could be a good one to ask is this. When confronted or rebuked, how does that person respond? You see, none of us are perfect. We're all still learning and growing. And certainly for those of us who lead and who teach regularly, we're going to make mistakes. We even see this uh, over and over again in the New Testament. Whether it was someone like Peter, as Andrew Wilson pointed out, who acted like a hypocrite in the book of Galatians and therefore had to have Paul call him out. Or whether it was someone like Apollos, who in Acts 18 had to have his theology tweaked and changed by the more mature Priscilla and Aquila, who taught him more accurately the way of Jesus. Now, my point in bringing up both of those examples is this, that in neither one of those cases, whether with Peter or with Apollos, do do they get accused of being or labeled as a false teacher. And the reason for that is because of how they respond when they were rebuked and confronted. Right, like if, if Paul would have called out Peter for his, uh, for his compromise in the gospel when he uh, was there in Galatia, uh, when he, you know, was eating with the Gentiles and then James shows up and he goes and uh, separates himself out again. If when he was confronted by Paul, Peter was like, no, what, Paul, forget that, I've changed my mind, then certainly it would be appropriate to label Peter as a false teacher, but he does not. By all indications, he repented and changed his mind. And so I think you and I have to keep this in mind as well, because it is possible and even likely for someone to make a mistake, but it's also possible for people to repent and to change their theology as well. For example, I remember hearing a couple years ago that Benny Hinn had repented for preaching the prosperity gospel. Now, I don't know if that's true and only time will tell, but if that is true, then I think you and I should feel like, praise God, right? Like as Christians, we believe in grace. We believe that nobody is truly canceled until they take their last breath. And so if Benny Hinn or anyone else like him truly does repent and change their theology, if it is heretical, then then that's great, right? Like that's a win for the kingdom of God. And so hopefully these five questions are helpful. Hopefully they they help us to begin to evaluate uh, the different teaching and theologies that are circling around in our day. And as I said earlier, because of the internet, this has only become more and more of a challenge. Now, again, it's not new. False teaching has always existed, and there's no doubt that is one of Satan's main strategies in trying to uh, destroy the church of Jesus. But certainly with the amount of voices and information that you and I encounter on a daily basis, we do need to be on our guard. And so let's pray now and let's ask the Lord to help us, to to guide us, and to protect us from, from these things. Pray with me. Father, we, we do need your help, Lord. God, we do live in a day and in an age where there's a lot of quote-unquote experts out there who are saying all kinds of things. And Lord Jesus, we need, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the gift of discernment to to know uh, whether or not something is from you or whether it is not. And so Jesus, I just pray for myself and I pray for this church and for my friends here that you would would protect us. God, that you would guard us from uh, from ever uh, getting uh, off into something that is not from you, from something that that goes against your, your holy scriptures. 
to go against something that compromises the gospel message. And so Jesus, we ask for your help. Lord, we want you to be honored. We want you to be glorified in our lives and in our beliefs. And so we ask for your help now in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to transition here into a time of worship together as we just celebrate the, the wonderful God that we, uh, that we serve. Um, and on your way in today, you should have picked up one of the communion packs. And like Nick was saying, you know, that is the unshakable truth of the gospel, that Jesus came, he was crucified, he was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. And so we use communion as a way to, to remember the Lord's death. Um, so during this first song, or at any point really during these next few songs, just take a moment and pause and reflect on that. Um, and just remember just the incredible sacrifice of the cross and also just the celebration of the new life that we have in Christ as well through his resurrection. So let's, let's remember it and let's worship together. Oh, come to the altar. 
we've uh, got one more song here this morning. Uh, I really, really love it. It's, it, it's kind of wordy. I, I don't like to introduce a lot of really, really wordy songs. Just I don't want you to feel like you're always two words behind on a song. Um, but this, this is a, I, I found this one like two weeks into COVID and it's just, it's really just been a fantastic ministry to me. Um, I really think you're gonna like it. So uh, let's, let's sing this song together. Jesus, my Redeemer, there is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless Will bring me home. 
win the race. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Amen. That may have been wordy, but that was an amazing gospel-saturated song, so thank you, David. Um, you know, I, I know in a lot of ways this message was a little more, uh, we were talking about it before the service, a little more informational than transformational, but hopefully you were able to connect with the Lord this morning. You know, there are those times where we need messages like this that maybe feel a little more luxury or something, because this stuff's important. It was important enough that it was included in the New Testament. Um, you know, we, as I was just saying, during the message, like we are constantly being bombarded day in and day out, whether it's through, again, TV or uh, musicians even, or um, teachers or whatever it is, we're constantly being exposed to different messages. And we need to be able to filter what we're hearing and bounce it against the scriptures, bounce it against the gospel to make sure that we're not being led astray. And, and that's what the church is for, right? Like we are community. And we, we can lean on each other. And so uh, I would just encourage you, if there's something that you feel like, man, I, you know, I've started to think about this and I'm not quite sure uh, based on some of the things that were shared this morning, feel free to come talk to one of our pastors or a small group leader or anyone else that you uh, would recognize as a mature Christian. And, and just ask them, say, hey, what do you, what do you think about this? Um, I want to, to remind uh, you that there'll be members of our prayer team down here. And so if you have anything going on in your life, it could have nothing to do with anything we talked about today. It could be a health issue. It could be a financial issue. It could be really anything. I would just encourage you to come down and let one of our prayer team members pray for you. Um, a reminder to our leaders, tomorrow night we do have a leadership huddle. It'll be our last one here before a summer break. And so we'd really encourage you, if you're a life group leader, a ministry leader, please try to make that uh, time tomorrow night. I think it's at seven, seven to nine. There we go. Um, all right. For a final benediction, um, if you feel comfortable, some, if you're new here, we, we'd like to end the service with a, a benediction, uh, typically from scripture. And we just raise our hands as a way to say, Lord, I, I wanna receive this benediction for my life. And so it comes out of 1 Thessalonians 5, says this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Amen. Amen.